You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So if you're like me, you probably remember bits and pieces of your early memories. I remember growing up in a town called Chervon Harad. I remember the street that I grew up on. I remember the home that I grew up in. I also remember that I loved it when my parents would take me to the park because oftentimes it meant I'd get my favorite ice cream at the square. Some things just never change. And I remember these things. And you probably have memories that are similar. But the further back I go, the more scarce those memories are and the fuzzier the memories get. Fortunately, my mom, like most moms, has kept a lot of pictures. And it's easy for us to take it for granted how incredible pictures are and how helpful they are to remember the past. And if I'm honest, at this point, it's hard for me to tell which of my earliest memories are actually my memories or which I've just absorbed through pictures. And pictures remind us of the things that we don't want to forget. And that brings us to our passage in Galatians, because like much of Scripture, it's packed with pictures of things that God doesn't want us to forget. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll look at Galatians 3. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the gospel hope you reveal through it that all who trust in Jesus are declared righteous, are made alive, and are brought into your family. And it's all because of the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. Help us see this afresh this morning. Strengthen our faith. Prepare our hearts and our eyes to see the beauty and the power of the gospel in Galatians 3. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, you're, if you were here last week, Pastor Jonathan finished Galatians 2, where Paul concludes his confrontation of Peter with explaining the gospel. A person is saved not by obeying works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You've heard it over and over. Jesus plus nothing else. Christ's perfect work on the cross for our sin was both necessary and it was sufficient for our salvation. It's not something that we could ever earn, but is given as a free gift to all who trust in Jesus. That is great news indeed. It's the greatest news the world has ever known. And the Galatians heard it. We know this from Paul's letters, and we know it from Acts chapter 13 and 14, that Paul, on his first missionary journey, came to the Galatians and preached the gospel to them. He preached it clearly and powerfully, and they believed. Many Gentiles believed the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit worked powerfully in and among them through miracles, both visible and invisible. The Galatians' lives were transformed by the gospel. 
But as time goes on, even Christians can start to give in to the subtle, sinful pull for self-reliance. There's a constant temptation to recenter our confidence ever so slightly on our own abilities. Maybe we just want to get a little bit of credit for our story. Or maybe we want to boast just a little bit in our own abilities. And that seems to be going on here with the Galatians. Now, at the same time, there were external pressures, right? We've heard of the Judaizers. They were smart, respected, influential teachers in town, making sincere arguments, even from scriptures, that yes, although you need to trust in Jesus, it's not the only thing you need to be saved. To be truly right with God, you're also required to keep the laws that God gave to the nation of Israel, like circumcision. So in effect, what they were teaching was Jesus plus works doing, or Jesus plus law keeping for their salvation. And really, the heart of the matter here is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. The world is filled with different religions and ways of thinking about God, and to a lot of people, they're all the same. A lot of people think that all, re- all religions are basically the same, and some of those people are probably your neighbors, and your coworkers, and maybe even your family. But it's not true. And here's a big difference. While other religions recognize that our relationship with God has been broken, their solution is that we have got to do something to make ourselves right with God. Everything relies on our ability to fix things. But the gospel says something completely different. The gospel says, yes, we are separated from God, but no, it's not up to us to fix it. Because we can't. We are dead in our sins, and we can't fix anything. Only God can. And he did. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross His death for our sin is both necessary and it's enough to reconcile us to God. And it's all given as a free gift to those who trust in Jesus. And that is the gospel that your neighbor and your coworker and your family need to hear. So what the Judaizers were teaching was not the gospel. No matter how genuine they were, their teachings were a lie and a trap to the Galatian Christians. And the Galatians were being deceived by it. Now Paul immediately saw the danger that the Galatians are in, and he makes it very clear. Galatians 2.21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians 5.2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're severed from Christ, fallen away from grace. If the Galatians fall for the trap of adding works doing or law keeping for their right standing with God, they will be throwing away the very gospel that saves them. By turning from the gospel, they are literally walking off a cliff. It will kill them. And Paul says it's the most foolish thing they could ever do. 
So let's look at Paul's response as he turns to plead with the Galatians directly in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is shocked. He wonders if they've been bewitched. It's like hypnotized or under a spell. It's like that scene in the Jungle Book when Mowgli gets hypnotized by Ka, the giant python. I don't know if you remember this, it's been a while. But Mowgli is a young man-cub walking through the jungle by himself, and out comes Ka. And Mowgli knows that Ka can't be trusted. All Ka wants to do is to eat Mowgli. So at first, Mowgli avoids eye contact. But eventually, Ka does make eye contact. And he starts singing that sneaky Trust in Me song. should look it up. And Mowgli is out. He is hypnotized. His eyes start doing the spinny thing, and he goes wherever Ka wants him to go. He is in trouble. We know that unless, unless someone snaps Mowgli out of his spell, he's going to be eaten. So that's basically what's going on with the Galatians. It's like they've been bewitched, been hypnotized, been put under a spell of the false gospel of works doing. And so Galatians 3 is Paul pleading with them to snap out of it. Paul is shocked that this is even happening. Why? Because their eyes have seen the gospel. This completely contradicts everything that Paul expects from those who have seen and believed the true gospel. As Paul puts it, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified Paul isn't saying here that they were physically present at Jesus' death. They weren't. And that's not what Paul's getting at. And yet he says their eyes have seen Jesus crucified. Their spiritual eyes had been opened through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached to them was clear and vivid and compelling, and it was effective. They saw it. It was as clear as if a billboard was in front of their face. It was like they were there at the cross with Mary and with John. It's like they saw Jesus crucified for their sin, his work on the cross as necessary and sufficient for their salvation, and they believed in Jesus. This wasn't just an idea that Paul got in their head. Something actually happened to them. So after all that, are they going to throw it away? For what? For the false gospel of works doing and law keeping? Paul can't believe it. And so how does Paul break this spell? He does it by presenting the Galatians with three pictures. So if you're looking for a sermon outline, here it is. Three pictures in Galatians 3, 1 through 9. Their baby picture, their family picture, and the gospel picture. Verse 2 starts the baby picture. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. Paul points the Galatians back to their spiritual baby picture, back to what happened at their conversion. He asks them to remember what happened when they first believed the gospel. And he's not just trying to get them with nostalgia here. He's asking, what happened? Was it by law-keeping? Was it by works-doing? Or was it through faith? Did you do it? Was it your flesh, your strength? Or did God do it? Was it the Spirit working in you? And the answer is obvious to the Galatians. Of course they weren't born again through law-keeping. They were Gentiles. Most had never even tried to keep the law. It was when Paul preached the gospel to them that something incredible happened. They believed and were born again. It wasn't a result of their works. The Holy Spirit worked, convicting them of their sin, producing faith in them to trust Jesus and the sufficiency of the cross. Their sins were forgiven. The Holy Spirit united them through faith to the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And just like that, they were alive a real, living, and breathing baby Christian. Paul says, look at that. This miraculous work of the Spirit through faith, this baby picture, grounds Paul's argument in the following verse. So let's look at verse three. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you see Paul's argument? He's saying, Galatians, you know that keeping the law played zero role in the miracle of your new birth. You know that there was nothing you could do to be born again. Your flesh, your works doing, and your law keeping had nothing to do with it. It was all completely dependent on the Spirit working through faith in you. So, It's absurd then to think that you can now outgrow a complete reliance, a complete dependence on the Spirit. Every heartbeat of your new life from the beginning to the end depends on the Spirit working through faith in you. There's only one way to finish the Christian life, Paul says, and it's the same way that it started through spirit-empowered faith in Jesus Christ alone. So talk about applicable. I think we could all look back to our spiritual baby pictures and remember the Spirit's miraculous work in our new birth. The Holy Spirit revealed our sin to us, convicted us of our sin and led us to repentance, Spirit produced faith in us, opened our eyes to see and trust in Jesus, and through faith, with every sin forgiven, he unites us to the perfect righteousness of Christ through faith. This wasn't a one-time event. It's your new life. It's a spirit-empowered life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Spirit of God is working in you through faith today, just as he has been from the beginning, from your spiritual baby pictures. 
So he goes on in verse four and five, did you suffer? Or another good translation, did you experience these things in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is reinforcing the same point. As Christians, we experience spiritual realities. Paul has no hesitation reminding the Galatians of their experience at their new birth and of the Spirit's continued work in them. What Paul says happened is true. Something actually happened to them and they've experienced it. He's saying the gospel isn't some idea I got in your head. Something actually happened to you and you know it. He appeals to their experience of the Spirit's work in their life. You're alive. Your experience bears witness to this. You were born again, and it was a work of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So Paul reminds them of their baby pictures to show them that there's only one way to finish the Christian life, and it's the same way that they started, through Spirit-empowered faith in Jesus Christ alone. So then as we move to verse six, Paul turns the Galatians' attention to Abraham and his family. And in doing so, he introduces us a second picture, and that's their family picture. So before we talk about Abraham, let's talk about family pictures. My mother-in-law, Jody, loves family pictures. And seeing that she's got nine kids, that's not usually an easy endeavor, but she makes it happen. It's incredible, I've been there. And so I think that she loves family pictures so much that the first thing she does when she gets to heaven is gather everyone, everyone, for a giant family picture. Can we just imagine that family picture for a second? Who do you see? Are there any family resemblances? Paul sees one. And to show us that family resemblance, he turns us to Genesis chapter 15 to the story of Abraham. So let's look at verse six and seven. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Paul reminds us first of Abraham's justification and how it happened. Abraham was a sinner that needed God's grace just like everybody else. He couldn't do anything to fix it. And yet Genesis 15 clearly says that he was justified. He was declared righteous by faith. It was a legal verdict that he did nothing to deserve. He didn't do it through works doing. He didn't do it through law keeping. He didn't do it through his ethnicity. It happened through faith. And Paul argues that the same is true for all God's promises to Abraham and his descendants. They're received through faith. Now to understand why Paul is even arguing this way, we need to remember that to the Jews, as several of our pastors have already mentioned, the world was fundamentally divided into two categories, Jews and not Jews. You were in the family, in God's family, or you were outside the family. You were either sons of Abraham 
or not. So the Jews were convinced that God's promises belong to God's family, right? It says to Abraham and to his descendants. So, well, we're Abraham's descendants. The promises of God belong to us. We are in God's family with Abraham. Now, this had to be crucial to the Judaizers' pressure on the Galatian Christians. Essentially, the argument goes like this. You can't just walk in and claim to be in God's family. Look at God's promises in Genesis. They're to Abraham and his descendants, his nation, Israel. God's promises are to Abraham and to his descendants. So if you, a Gentile, want in, you've got to go all in. You have to become a Jew, right? You could be a, a Jewish convert, and you've got to start looking like the family, start resembling the family, be circumcised, and follow the laws. And that had to be incredibly distressing to the Galatian Gentile Christians. What the Gentile Christians are struggling to know is, am I in God's family or not? It's, remember, this is why Peter not eating with the Gentile Christians was such a big deal. By not coming to the family meals with the Gentiles, Peter was confusing the Gentile believers. He was reinforcing their own fears that they weren't in God's family. And Paul is having none of that. Paul is clear. In verse 6, he switches from asking questions to a clear instruction. Know then, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Paul says there's only one way into God's family, and it's the same way that it happened to Abraham. It's not about being a Jew, and it's not about living like a Jew. It's not about your works or your ethnicity. It's through faith. The sons of Abraham, or we could say the family of Abraham, are those who are in God's family with Abraham. And they're the very same people that have been justified by grace through faith, like Abraham. Paul looks at the family picture and says, the family resemblance is faith. So let's keep going in verse 8 and 9. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice Paul's argument is from the Old Testament scriptures. He's quoting Genesis 15. Paul says you're absolutely right to go to the Old Testament scripture. You should study the Old Testament scripture. You should learn what it preaches because it preaches the same gospel. So from Genesis 15, Paul reminds them of their family picture. It's through faith for all nations. It's not a typical family picture, right? Look at that picture. Everybody looks different. There are people from every nation, every tribe, Jews and Gentiles, and yet they share the family resemblance. It's faith. 
Now, can we pause for a moment and look back to that family picture? It's the same family picture that John shows us in Revelation 7, verse 9. John says, a great multitude. A great multitude. No one could number it. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying, salvation belongs to our God. Beautiful, isn't it? Paul dismantles any other fundamental identity. There are two categories of people, those who are in God's family and those who are not those who have trusted in Jesus and those who have not. And that brings us to our third and final picture. Now, for this, we go back to verse one. This is the picture that Paul started with when he first preached the gospel to the Galatians on his missionary journey. And it's the one that he goes back to first here in chapter three when he sees them abandoning the gospel. And that picture is a gospel picture. And it's a shocking picture. Paul reminds them it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Christ's death on the cross was reality, and they've seen it. The gospel picture of Christ crucified exposes the death of our sin, the guilt that we have. Christ's death was necessary. Your sin and, your my, and my sin, your transgression, my transgression, our treason against the very God who created us is so horrible, so offensive. The wrath of God that you and I deserve is so heavy that the Son of God had to die. We are guilty, and there is nothing we can do to fix it. Christ crucified reminds us of that. And yet, the gospel picture of Christ crucified reminds us that Jesus did die. It's reality. God became a man in the person of Jesus. God came to us. He was perfectly righteous perfectly sinless, and yet he willingly died on the cross for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath in our place. And now his perfect righteousness is counted to us who trust in Jesus. Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. His perfect work on the cross is reality, and we've seen it. As one author puts it, a Christian is not someone who knows about Jesus, but one who has seen him on the cross. When we heard the gospel preached and our eyes were opened, we saw Jesus crucified for our sins. It's like we were there at the cross. The Spirit opened our eyes to see and trust in Jesus. Our sins were forgiven. His spirit through faith united us to the perfect righteousness of Christ. Something actually happened, and we've seen it. Christian, you have seen that Jesus loves you. 
The gospel picture of Christ crucified reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And it's a free gift to all who trust in Jesus. We never outgrow the gospel picture. The gospel isn't something that we believed in once, got our get out of jail free card, put it in our back pocket, and forget about it. It's the heartbeat of our new life in Christ. All of the Christian life depends on looking to Jesus on the cross from our first baby picture until the final family picture. It all rests on his perfect work on the cross. And that brings us to the table. Because at the table, we are reminded of the gospel picture every week. We remember his death as a substitute for our sin, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And we do it every week because his work on the cross both purchased and sustains our life. Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or 30 days, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are sustained by Christ's work on the cross. And so Jesus invites us to the family meal. And we remember the gospel picture. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that all who trust in Jesus are declared righteous, were made alive, and are brought into your family. Thank you for the new life we have in Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives and works in us from our first breath to our last. And it's all because of the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. Keep us from ever turning away from the gospel. Make us always look to and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a passion and a boldness to share this good news with those around us, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, and our families. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we come to the table, you are invited to eat and to drink with us this morning if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, if you are united to him by faith. We invite you now to this table. Uh, a couple uh, just details about how the elements work. It's bread and, and juice together. Um, the cup is grape juice on the outer ring. Everything else is wine. So if you prefer grape juice, remembering to say it this week. If you prefer grape juice, it's the outer ring, okay? Everything else is wine. Uh, his blood is the true drink. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.